that it would be hard to get excited about talking about a genealogy. Most of us will skip that uh, whenever we're cruising through the Bible. Um, there's actually, I always made the joke that if you, to my mom, like if you gave me like one topic and six weeks to prepare for it, it didn't matter what it was, but I could make a thesis about it. So he said, do the genealogy, and I had actually been looking at something related to the genealogy not long before, so I was like, let's do this. This is actually kind of exciting. So if you want to bring up the slideshow, we'll go to the, the next slide. So before I do usually any kind of talk on something like this, there's a principle that I go over right before, um, and that is, before I kind of, I want to, pray a little bit before I start, but it's a concept that I've kind of come to as I'm setting this, deconstruction versus reformation. So, so many times when we're in our Christian walk or when we're studying the Bible, we come across something that we don't understand, we don't know why it's there, um, and these little check engine lights come on, but everything's going great, our faith sounds pretty good, so we're just going to keep cruising, we're not going to pay attention, and we're going to deal with it later, but eventually in life, the more that we do that, um, Eventually enough lights come on that the, uh, that the car basically stalls out and our faith stalls out and we need to, then all of a sudden we're shut down and we need to take time working on the things that we've ignored for so long. And one of the two approaches that I think people take with that is when they find something in scripture that they don't understand, um, they just break everything down and they just um, will abandon it where it is without trying to figure out um, how they've been reading scripture incorrectly. They just blame scripture for it and then go on. But what I want us to do is when we find something that um, we notice in how we're reading scripture, if we're doing that poorly, that we take the time that we break things back down and then find the thing that's not working and then reform things so that our faith uh, has more integrity and that we're heading more towards being faithful to God and how we read scripture. So that's prayer for kind of how we start this tonight. So I'm going to also pray for myself real quick. Lord, I thank you for this night, and I thank you for the ability to talk about something that's pretty near and dear to me. Um, God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth would not be um, an exercise in making my own name great, um, would not be an exercise in making myself look good and full. Um, but I thank you for the life that you've given me um, and the experiences that you've given me that inform um, how I'm able to pass this information for myself to the people that I love and that I care for. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would prohibit me from being able to speak things from you um, and you'd keep people from taking in something that they're not supposed to take in, but that you'd also open their ears if that is supposed to be picked. Um, thank you for that. Cool, so next slide. So one of the things before I go into how we're going to read this genealogy, we're going to a little bit about how we read ancient Hebrew meditation literature. So, go to the next slide, please. So, a couple things. I don't know if you can see this or not, but I'll read them to you. And for anyone that's just going to go to the recording as well, you'll be able to hear me read this too. So, something about the way that ancient Hebrew meditation literature was written, so most of the Old Testament. So, it's meant to be read and over and over. And this is different from the way that we read it. We tend to read the Bible like you'd read War and Peace or Le Zohab. read it once, and we say, that was a pretty good story. Maybe I'll read it again in a couple years, and you put it down. But we're not supposed to read it like that. Um, we're supposed to be reading this over and over and over again, asking ourselves the question of, where have I seen these themes before? And we're going to talk about theme that we're going to go through um, for the Table of Nations in a little bit. It's meant to be read in community. 
It's meant to be read out loud, and it's meant to be read all at once. Um, we have a bad habit of nitpicking things out of the Bible um, and weaving them onto pillows. Uh, the scripture is not meant to be used that way. It's meant to be read um, in large trunks, chunks the way that they would use uh, the scrolls in synagogue. And this, I think, is the most important point, and I'm example on this in a second. So the, my question to you is, was the Bible written for you? And the answer to that question is yes, but was the Bible written to you? And the answer to that question is no. So you were reading literature that was meant for a specific people, was not written with you in mind, in a culturally different time, place, season, with different values. So as we go forward with reading this, what I hope that we can do is recognize who we are and with meekness, remove ourselves from that reading to understand the original intent of the text. So for example, reading it from a perspective of this is an honor-shame culture rather than a guilt-innocence culture, circular logic rather than linear logic. Okay, go to the next slide. Okay. So this is my analogy, and Thomas was asking me why I brought a pipe to church. But my question is, is this a pipe? Because I'm not referencing the piece of art that says Sessine That's not this, but is this a pipe? Yes. How do you know it's a pipe? That's a very easy answer. It, yeah, there we go. It is. Okay. So you've seen Sherlock Holmes. You've watched him puff his pipe in his little living room and Oh, it's you know, elementary deer walk. You've seen your grandfather puff a pipe. Uh, you have probably purchased a pipe for yourself and sat around somewhere smoking it with me. And this, <coughs> I've used it as a pipe. This is a great little pipe. It's got a uh, kind of ruffled exterior where it holds the tobacco leaf inside the bowl, which prevents, if you're a hot smoker, burning your fingers. The stem is not a pretentious le- length. It's great. It's a great little pipe. So when know that this is a pipe because of our life experience, and we bring the interpretation of what this pipe actually is because of everything we've experienced in pipes. And so see a pipe, I know exactly what it's meant for. When I was in Afghanistan, um, I collect pipes. We were walking around. This was near the end of my time there. We were walking around looking for souvenirs. And my buddy and I, we were with this guy um, who was what's called a chokdar, which is... Uh, it translates to the guy that sits in the chair, but it means that like, this is your guard. So he was kind of showing us around, and he didn't really speak English. We didn't really speak Dari, but he was helping us find little souvenirs. And we came across this bucket of pipes. And I was like, perfect. Every country I've been to, I've gotten a different little pipe, and this will be Afghanistan pipe. So I pick up this little wooden pipe. It's got this very plain engraving on the outside of it, but I was like, Afghanistan, this, if they're going to have a pipe, this is what the pipe would probably be. So <clears throat> Caleb's like, oh, yes, I collect pipes now, too, because this sounds like a cool idea. So we pick up these pipes, and we start to put them into our mouths. And a guard that we were with, everyone, like, looks at us like completely shocked. And the guard who's with us says, no, 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 nay, 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 nay. And I knew if just a few words of Yari, um, and he had a son named Khalil. And I knew what this other word meant, shush. So he said, nay, 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 and takes the pipe from me. And he holds it down below his belt, and he says, Halil Shush, which means my little baby boy would pee into this pipe. What this pipe was was not a smoking pipe. The pipe is something that they would, uh, the way that they nurtured their children was by, um, they'd swaddle them and hug um, them into this pipe 
so that the uh, baby could just pee through the pipe into a bucket and they wouldn't have to change the diaper whenever the baby peed. This was a pee pipe I was about to put into my mouth. <coughs> I think we do this with scripture. <laughs> we, we walk around a foreign culture uh, that existed at a different time than we did, and we're tourists, um, and we use the Bible for souvenir shopping. Going through the Bible, looking for just the things that we want that are going to help us in our life and look really knitted onto a bow. When we do that, when we wander through a culture and we look at it, and of course we would interpret that as a pipe, because from our experience and our culture, everything we know that says that's a pipe, there's no one I'm sure that you've ever met that has plugged their child into a pipe in order for them to pee. And yet this was completely normal in that culture. I think we do this with scripture um, as tourists going through it. So I hope that what we do is, as we're going through reading this, we're not acting as tourists, but we're humble as we go into this other culture. So that's the, uh, the Halil Shush story. Okay. So I'm going to read for you the Table of Nations, and then uh, please try and stay awake. Okay. This is Genesis 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Raphath, and Togormah. Sons of Javan, Elisha, Arshish, Hittim, and Dodanin. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their land, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Ut, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Sabta, Rama, and Saptaka. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Ad, Almeh, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum, Amim, Lehabim, I'm getting tired, Nephtahim, Athrasim, Kaphlehim, from whom the Philistines came, of course, and Kaphtim, because you knew that. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Hath, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimorites, and the Hammerites. Afterward, the clan, I could probably slip names into here that you're not, yeah. Like, oh, and yeah, the Wookiees, and yeah. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, the language of their lands, and their nations. Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the, father, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. Sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons, the names of one Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmeveth, Era, Doram, Uzal, Dikalal, Obal, Abimel, Jeba, Ophir, Avila, and Jobab. All these sons of Joktan. 
the territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country in the east. These are the sons of Shem, their clans, their lands, their lands, their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, their nations, and from whom the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is the word of God. I grew up in a Catholic culture, so you would say thanks be to God, but that's fine. Okay, go to the next slide. Okay, for listening to this, I'm going to reward you with a bit of trivia. Um, this is the Nimrod effect. So, when I say Nimrod, you think dummy, idiot, something like that. So, however, in history, Nimrod was this mighty hunter. The reason we think of Nimrod as a complete idiot is because Bugs Bunny insulted Elmer Fudd by calling him Nimrod because he was not a mighty hunter. He was using irony. So anyway, so if Nimrod showed up now, he'd be like, I am Nimrod. And we'd be like, ha ha. Then he would walk away ashamed. So it's actually called the Nimrod effect. Um, anyway, so a little bit of trivia. So um, seen the sermon? No, just kidding. Um, we'll keep going. So, um, one of the things that's important to me whenever we, if it's at all possible, is to do a, um, I'm approach a theme to do a summary um, of scripture up until that point. Try to do that. Uh, oh shoot! Is my phone there? Yeah, can you hand it to me? I'm gonna set my timer um, because in the midst of doing all of this, I discovered that I had way too much information, and you wouldn't think that about a genealogy. But I also want y'all to be able to go home and go to bed tonight, so I'm gonna set that. But we're gonna do. Um, we're gonna approach this through the theme, family of God. So we're gonna start. Um, with doing a summary from Genesis 1 through 9, so that we actually know why we're doing this genealogy in Genesis 10. Okay. So feel free to turn to these places as I'm reading them. I'm using this ES. Um, we're going to start, and like I said, as I approach this, this may not seem like, this may not make sense when I'm first starting it, but the, the reason we're doing this is because we're going to establish some themes um, for the family of God starting in Genesis 1. So I'm going to start with Genesis 1, 26. And some of these words, um, I'm going to retranslate them so that they make a little bit more sense. Um, and are Because um, English is not a great language to translate into from, um, from Hebrew. <coughs> okay. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make Adam. So Adam being, whenever anyone says Adam, it does not mean man. We interpret it to mean man. It means humankind. So let us make humankind in our image. And the word that's used for image is selim, which is the same word used later for idol. So basically God is saying, let's make our idol for us is actually going to be humankind that we make in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps in the earth. Can you go to the next slide? Oh, yeah, okay. Before I keep reading, this was my, this is the thesis of what we're going for. So you know you're in for a fun talk whenever the person has a thesis when they start presenting. So for someone who was in school for 26 years, I can't talk without anything like this. The thesis of this, the table of nations represents a divine ordering that is complete and part of his plan of redemption. We're meant to deeply care about the nations and strive for their unity under the lamb that was slain. To ignore this and to focus on the elevation of one group identity Apart from our identity as the image of God is to invite severe mercy exile. How are we going to show this? I'm going to 
read ancient Hebrew literature. Um, and the theme of approach, ordered family of God is a theme through scripture. One important thing that someone taught me before that helped me with how I read Genesis 1 through 11 in particular is that Genesis 1 through 11 set the themes of scripture. So as you're reading Genesis 1 through 11, you see something, notice that it's probably establishing a theme if you've never seen it before. Okay, go to the next slide. Okay. So when you get to this, this is Genesis 1, 27, the image of God. I, some of the, I, didn't, like, ch- I didn't change the words in the sense of like, put new words in there. But so that it made more sense uh, as a translation from Hebrew. So Elohim, this is, so one important thing when reading um, Hebrew poetry, one of the common poetic techniques they use um, is called po- parallelism. So they would use, and you see this all through the Psalms and Proverbs, where they use two lines that are very similar to each other, and they're meant to give you the ability to um, compare and contrast and get more information than you would if the lines have been separated by themselves. This uses kind of like a uh, two-part um, poetic parallelism. So the first line um, is parallel to the second, that gives you the ability to parallel the second line to so Elohim created a humanity, uh, not the word for man, but Adam, Ha-Adam. So Elohim created the humanity as his own idol. As the idol, using the word idol, that word pop. Elohim created the humanity as his own idol. As the idol of Elohim, he created him. So it's the same sentence, but flipped around. Created him, the humanity. Then male and female, a plural of that word image or idol he created them, the humanity so as we read this so the first part of this theme that we're going to try to establish is mankind images god when they are in unity all of humanity together are the image of god also male and female together are the image of god okay go to the next slide so next um we're going to go to Genesis 2 to further explore. So this is one of those, this is one of those chapters where one of the themes starts to come out of uh, the royal priesthood, kind of branches off from here, and it's really tempting to kind of like follow that theme along with the family of God, but I'm going to avoid it, and that will come back later. So Genesis 2, 18 through 24. So, okay. There's so much that I could say, but I'm not going to. Okay, then the Lord's God said, Elohim Yahweh. Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, the word alone here, actually in Hebrew, pronounced like bad. Um, the word is an architectural term. It's super interesting. The word is an architectural term often used to describe a tent pole that is trying to hold up an entire tent by itself. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, English does gross disservice to this verse. So the culture that I grew up in, it was sort of like, um, they talk, a lot of the people that I knew would use this as a way to say that like the, the wife is just the helper and she's going to cook and clean and everything will be fine and it was all for the pursuit of the husband as he kind of did. It was unhealthy. But his passions were. word for helper here is the word azer. Uh, and it means deliverer. It means uh, rescuer. He's literally calling this person who's going to come to 
aid of Adam, the person who's going to deliver him from his aloneness. The only other times in Scripture that Azer is used as a noun to describe a person is when it's describing God as a deliverer for his people. And then the next word, uh, be fit for him, is a word uh, called konegdao. Um, and the best way to kind of, in my mind, to describe this, okay, um, in chemistry there's something called an enantiomer. And basically what it is, is when something is the mirror image of something else. And this word, um, konegdao, means to be set apart and in front of in order to be able to complement. So what God is basically saying is, it's not good that man should hold this stuff up alone. I will make for him a deliverer who is the counterpart of him um, in order to be able to lift him up. And this is sal- this like salvific rescuer. As I was reading this, I was thinking, this is the theology of being a gentleman. Like, we don't hold the door open for, for their weak. We hold it open for them because they're strong and because they've delivered us and rescued us from our weakness. And I think that's like an amazing picture. Um, so, after he says this, he brings him a bunch of animals, and that doesn't work. But for Adam, there was not found a help fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep fall upon Adam. And while he slept, took from okay, one of his ribs. So if you look at the rest of Scripture, this is not the word for rib. This is the word selah, which the next time you see this, there's three main sections that you see this. One, when it's talking about the tabernacle. One, when it's talking about the temple. And the other time is in Ezekiel, when it's talking about the construction of the most holy place where we encounter God. This is not the word for rib. This is, once again, another architectural term. So if you're reading scripture and you're saying, okay, if you understand the original Hebrew, you're going to read this and say, this is an architectural term. It's talking about, like, the side of a building, um, not just, like, the side of a person. I wonder when I'm going to see this again. So the next time you see it is tabernacle, the temple, place where God is dwelling. So it's implying that it's one of his sides. So together, they are actually the temple, the tabernacle, the most holy place, or will be this of God in the future. Enclosed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from Ha'adam, he made into Jah, which is woman, and brought her to the man. Um, so these are the first times it's actually used for gender. Then the man said, this is my bones of flesh and my flesh. Should be, she shall be called woman because she was taken from man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother, fast to his wife, and they shall become flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. So, bear in mind, this says like this is going to come back in the future after we get farther down the road in the scripture. So, the themes that start to come into Genesis two, ones that we're probably familiar with, are the garden as the temple of Yahweh, mankind as the image or the idols of Yahweh, mankind as the priests of Yahweh. But one thing that stood out to me as I was studying that mankind, this is the first time we really see imagery that mankind is the temple of Yahweh. So why I'm saying this, when you read through scripture and you're looking at either the theme of reuniting the family of God and the nations or the royal priesthood, I want you to notice how these two things are starting to be intertwined. So as we've gotten through Genesis 1 and 2, the image of God poem in Genesis 1 begins a theme that by the end of Genesis 2 makes you realize that the 
um, that only as a unified family of humans do we fully represent the image of God intended. Um, so this should not be a shock to any of us that the picture of all and one are um, uh, the image of God. If we're made in the image of a Unitarian God, the fact that we as, um, as distinct um, entities all together um, in our diversity creating one is an extremely Trinitarian view of human identity. So let's go to principle number one. Go to the next slide. Principle number one. God's purpose is to have a whole family of families and their diversity reflect the image of God and their uniqueness not at the expense of their unity. Okay, go to the next slide. So, and then everything falls apart. So mankind, Genesis 3, chooses to take themselves they think will make them like God. And the irony of this is of course, that they actually already are in God. God said they are. And chooses to follow their own wisdom rather than Yahweh's. Someone pointed this out to me recently. I thought this was interesting. The very first thing when man and woman decided to um, take wisdom for themselves and to do right in, the own, in their own eyes, the very first thing to be affected was their unity. So when they took, um, and when they began to look at each other in their own wisdom of what they thought was good and bad, their first response was to notice different from me. Something about you that the difference is to a degree that creates shame in you and creates shame in me. This was even before they had encountered God after they ate the fruit. So when we define our own wisdom about good and bad, the consequences of being vulnerable to another becomes a risk, becomes dangerous, becomes unsafe. Differences become a source of potential conflict and tribalism erupts and the very first family of God is broken. Okay, in Genesis 4, am I my brother's keeper? I always thought that was interesting when you, when you know what actually helper means when it describes um, the creation of men. It, is, um, it brings that to mind. Um, the word keeper is guardian or protector. It's a very similar word. And it's sort of rhetorical. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, you are your brother's keeper. So two brothers, one becomes jealous over the favor God shows. Unity is further fractured through murder. This murderer builds a city, and the seventh descendant from Adam through Cain, he further fractures the ideal by making two become one by taking two. He takes two wives. Then he sings a song about murder, declares Cain over himself times verse two. He's basically saying, I'm Cain times ten. Cain represents the fracture of the ideal family within the context of, a fa of one family. Lamech represents the fracture of family in the setting community and the entire we get another genealogy, Genesis 5. I'm not going to read that. You're welcome. Genesis 6, there's a cosmic fracturing involving the sons of God and the daughters of men. So when you juxtapose the fracturing of mankind on the land with the fracturing of the Elohim in the sky, and what do you get? The land was filled with, it's supposed to be filled with life-giving humanity, but it's filled with violence. So Genesis 7 through 8, the scent of chaos and the flood narrative, Genesis 7 through 8, so because of this violence, a man whose name means rest, a symbol of God's complete and ordered universe, all the animals, male and female, into a boat, a floating micro-Eden, that survives the collapse of the ordered universe when the waters above and below fall in on each other. So that's a revisiting 
Yahweh's order in the chaos waters in Genesis 1. He lands on the top of an Eden-like mountain with a name that rhymes with the word curse in Hebrew. He makes a garden, and when they leave the boat, God literally redoes the mandate of be fruitful multiply. So, at first you're thinking, yeah, they did it. Is this the guy that is going, that you know, was promised in Genesis 3 that's going to make everything better? But have you ever read like a book and you're like a hundred pages from the end and the resolving conflict way too quickly, you're like, someone's going to die because the book's not over yet, it can't be over yet. That's kind of what this is like because you get Genesis 9. Noah replays the failure of Adam and Eve in his own garden. He eats from the fruit of the garden and is naked and shamed. And this narrative combines the themes of th- Genesis 3 and 4, it's the Cain and Abel story. The son who takes advantage of someone's nakedness playing the part of the snake, fractures the family, playing the part of Cain. The brothers acting like God cover the nakedness of their shamed father who ate the fruit. Call back to Genesis 3. And another family is once again fractured and divided and scattered. And this leads us finally back to the graphic Genesis 10. So, now that we did the summary, we're actually going to look at Genesis 10 and what it means in the context of the family of God. Um, we're going to just look at the literary design real quick. So it opens and closes um, with a key repeated phrase. So um, those are the generations of the son, uh, sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons are born to them after the flood. And the key repeating phrase, and when phrases are repeated through, it's doing so like poetic parallelism to make something pop inside of one. So the repeated phrase changes a little bit. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, from these nations, they're separated, severed from the earth after the flood. Um, okay, so three long paragraphs, one for each son. You have Japheth, seven sons, seven grandsons, and the conclusion of verse five. If you look at the map, uh, these families show up in the north or west of the Mediterranean. Um, and one important thing is verse five. From these, the coastline people spread in their lands into their own language by their clans and their nations. So this is the first mention that this isn't supposed to be a complete list of all the nations. This is telling you that the nations specifically mentioned are there for us. This is setting also the theme throughout the rest of Scripture of tribes, tongues, and languages. Again, then you have Ham, four sons, Cush, which is Ethiopia, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, and Put, which is just a genuinely tragic name. Ethiopia has seven sons and grandsons. The genealogy stops for narrative. We'll get back to this. And Canaan has 12 sons, obviously an important number, along with borders, and this obviously comes into play at a later time. Then we have Shem, which is where you get the word Shemites, which is where we get the word Semitic, and the father of the sons of Eber. Eber is where we get the word for Hebrew. Uh, Shem has 12 sons and 14 descendants of Eber. So, okay, so I'm going to read you this quote from a Jewish scholar. <coughs> if you get anything from what I'm about, you can fall asleep after I read this next but if you want to just pay attention for the next 120 seconds, this really summarizes why Genesis 10 is so important. So this is from Nahum Sarna, um, a Jewish scholar in Genesis, JPS, for a commentary. The figure 70, even if not explicitly, so there's 70, 70 nations in this. The figure 70, even if not explicitly given, can hardly be fortuitous. The mere recognition in verse 5 of the existence of additional unnamed coastal nations lends added significance to the enumeration of 
being deliberately chosen. So seven, 70 was deliberately chosen. In the biblical world, number 70 is typological. That is, it is used for a rhetorical effect to evoke the idea of totality, comprehensiveness on a large scale, as opposed to the use of seven on a smaller scale. Thus, according to Genesis 46:27, the entire household of Jacob that went down to Egypt comprised 70 people. The representative body of the entire community of Israel in the wilderness constituted, uh, consisted of 70 elders, as recorded in Exodus 24:9 and Numbers 11:24. In light of this convention, one may safely assume making the offspring of Noah's sons total 70 is a lit- literary device to convey the notion of the totality of the human race. This device affords an insight into a major function of the table, document thus far unparalleled in the ancient world. And what he means by that is um, core to the national mythology of a lot of ancient people groups was the idea that they alone were the descendant of the gods. Because of their specialness, all these other people around them were inferior and subservient. Um, as compared to this text, which actually brings to bear the equality of the nation as the image of God in one source. He goes on to say, it is no mere academic or scholastic exercise. Terms, first of all, the common origin, absolute unity of humankind. Then it tacitly, effectively, asserts that the varied instrumentalities, um, we'll explain this in a second, asserts that the varied instrumentalities of human divisiveness are all secondary to the essential unity of the international community, which truly constitutes the faith of man. So Genesis 10 is claiming that all humanity is unified going back to a common origin, and implicitly claims that all the ways that we divide ourselves from each other is secondary to the family of humanity as images of God. Okay, so now you can go to sleep. I'm going to keep talking. So it buried in the middle of this, like I said before, is this passage. So it, the table of nations is like a mirror with two sides, and the center of it is this passage where it talks about how Cush fathered Nimrod. So, like I said, in the middle of this, is, it's the origin of Babylon, which comes from a man of violence attempting to make a name for himself. So the way that you read Genesis 10, when they wrote the scroll of Genesis, there weren't chapter markings. You were supposed to read this. And it works similarly to Genesis 1 and 2, where the story builds forward to a particular result, which is where are all these nations getting their languages from? You say, how did we get here? And the following story explains, similar to Genesis 1 getting to a point, and then you say, well, how did that actually happen? Genesis 2 goes into the actual story of how. So Cush fathers Nimrod. Nimrod's name, uh, letters scrambled around, rebel. So verse 8 claims that Nimrod was a Gabor. So when it says he was a mighty man, the way that, so I was trying to read the text and kind of translate it for myself, uh, he was the first earth, the mighty man. Is I don't really like that. Um, really, more like uh, he grew up or he grew to be a gibor. So when it's talking about the gibor, the giborim, it's one of the sons, um, descendants of the sons of God who violated the boundaries of the heavens to have intercourse with human women. So not only that, but he was an animal slayer before Yahweh. So like, why is this here? The table of nations raises the issue. Of, okay. Where is this division and separation coming from? So the word that it uses, like I said at the end, um, where the nations were spread abroad, that word is severed. Um, how were these, where did the severance come from? Um, and the next story is going to explain that with the power of Babel. 
um, it's pointing you there, saying that all of this separation comes from a violent warrior who made a name for himself. And we've, this is the deal, the weird thing. We've seen violence up to this point. Um, the whole entire story from Genesis 3 up until now is story after story after story of the family of humanity being fractured through violence. This is the, f- this is the first time where human beings are finally not fighting together and they're finally uniting actually accomplish something in their work community. So the first impression, if you're going to read the story, is this sounds pretty good. Like they're finally not murdering each other. They're finally able to sit in the same room and accomplish something. So one of the things that kind of points you to this being um, a story that's in the negative category is the literary design of Genesis 1 through 11 has a central focus point on the flood. So 10 generations before the flood and then 10 generations after the flood up to Abraham. There are three rebellion narratives before the flood and three rebellion narratives after the flood, and they mirror each other. <clears throat> so in this case, the story of the building of Babylon mirrors the rebellion of the sons of God, and it's connected by Nimrod being one of the Gabor. Instead, in this story, instead of the realm of heaven coming down to earth illegitimately, it's the people of earth trying to get to heaven illegitimately. So the desire, this is important if you're going to burn something into your brain, the desire here is for unity, but it's in their own wisdom, with resu- which results in a destructive type of unity meant to make their own name great instead of making them great. When you get to Genesis 12, when it finally starts to focus in on Abraham, just go read it, and you'll see there's this language in there. That's a reversal of this. <clears throat> okay, so a little bit of that. And I don't want to harp on this too much, because uh, this is going to be doing um, Babylon next week which is going to be great, too. So this is like a little, just a little preview. Okay, where do we go? Okay. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Literally translated, they had one lip and word. As people migrated from the east, so whenever you see east, think this is the, where the cursed people come from, they found a plain in the lands of Shinar, and they said to their, to their let's make bricks, which uh, is the word Babylon with letters scrambled around, and burned them thoroughly. And they made for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower on top of it. So this is the Hebrew word for head. Um, when you look at this later, this matches almost perfectly to Daniel chapter 3. So we're not going to get into that. Go read that. Um, and let us make Shem, name, uh, for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city, the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, and this sentence maps on uh, to Genesis 3, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they're going to do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible. Let's go down there, and we will balal, and confuse their language, so they may they can't understand one each other's speech. So the Lord dispersed them and from there the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, <coughs> its name is called Babel or Babylon because the Lord confused the language of the earth. The Lord dispersed them all over the face of the earth. So Babylon represents, contrasting with everything that came before it, this human short-sighted attempt to unify the human family. But here it's elevating one culture, one place, one city, elevating one name. It's human beings making a name for themselves. So the first few chapters of Genesis creates this tension. We have 
um, being full and multiplying and filling the land. So it's a type of unity that they're going to need, uh, but that can't involve staying in one space. You can't be fruitful and disperse. Well, you can't be fruitful without being together, but you can't multiply without leaving. So how do we do this? How can we all go out and be multiplied, yet be one? Give this in your memory banks for later. So their identity in their own wisdom is to attach their identity and oneness to a piece of land and create a monument in their own name, which is the glory of their identity. They're creating a new humanity, but for their own name, which honors their own identity and gives their own selves glory. It's right to want this human oneness, but this desire for them is twisted in self-elevation. So that's the Babylon ideal, that human families would deify something about their own family into the heavens. They find another unity besides their true unifying identity that they are the image of God collectively. You can go to the next slide. And then the one after that. There we go. So principle number two. God wants to bring all of these nations that are in Genesis 10 together, but on his terms, under a specific identity, and under a specific oneness. So, that raises the question. What does God actually want this unity to look like? So, you can go to the next slide. So we're going to do what I want to do, island hopping. So, we're going to follow this theme of unity in a couple places in Scripture and establish a landing point um, at, the, at the very end of Revelation. So we're going to go to Isaiah first. So, one summary that I read of kind of how Isaiah works in this fashion, I realized God's plan has always been to include all nations in his covenant family. And he'll do this through his servant, seed that would come from the family of Israel. This was the source of hope for the prophet. There are two big poems in Isaiah that emphasize the prophet Isaiah's hope in God's plan and not our plan to form a covenant people that will one day embrace and include all. So the first one, which is Genesis in, sorry, Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain, the head of the Lord, the mountain, the house of the Lord, shall be established as the head, there's that word again, where have we seen that before, of the mountain, and shall be lifted up above the hills. All the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, shall decide disputes from many people. They shall beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Going on to Isaiah, the seed that I talked about, Isaiah 11, 10 through 11. And that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of whom shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And that day the Lord shall extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains from his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathos, from Cush, from Elijah, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Where have we seen this before? This is an echo. And bookending Isaiah in Isaiah 60, 1-7. And pay attention to this first line. Eyes shine, your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. This is a reflection of the first few words of Genesis 1. But the Lord will arise upon you, 
same way that the Spirit hovered over the water. The Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your eyes. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your hearts shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, and the wealth of the nations shall come over you. The multitude of camels shall cover you, and the young camels from Midian and Ephraim. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, Merry Christmas, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. The flocks of Kedar, Ishmael's descendants, shall gather to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance of my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. So, summary of what all of this in Isaiah is saying. God wants this family, this human family, unified, but through the suffering servant we see in Isaiah. So next we're going to go to Matthew. So the book of Matthew, he's taken some oral tradition in the last 40 years and woven it together in a tapestry, sort of meant to highlight certain themes about Jesus. In particular, that Jesus is the continuation, the fulfillment of the entire story that's come before. And in Matthew, one of the things that's interesting is this definite tension in Matthew between the Messiah's call to reach Israel, Yahweh's plan to bring the family out of the nations back together, even starting in uh, the genealogy in Matthew 1, which I'm not going to read. So this is the genealogy kind of coming all from all the way back to present. The only time these gene- the genealogy is interrupted is... Um, it's adding four women to the genealogy um, that are all Gentile women. So this genealogy is attaching Jesus' story to the timeline of the rest of the Bible, but Matthew goes out of his way to point out the nations who are integral to the story by the women he adds to the genealogy. From the start, he's highlighting Christ's place and bringing the nations back together in the context of two becoming one. And then Matthew 2, <coughs> a story we're all familiar with and we probably of little toys in our house that we set up each year. Sorcerers, who Israel would have stoned, come from the east, that's the geographical equivalent of exile, to give Jesus gold and myrrh, pulling directly from Isaiah 60, so that he's talking about going up to the city. And this is pictured in Matthew. In Matthew 4, 23-25, they went through, this is when Jesus was beginning his ministry, throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogue claiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him the sick, afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, and those having seizures. And I, I always appreciated this because people in medicine will always say, oh, people that thought it was demon possession, they were just having seizures. I love how Matthew makes the decision to be like, no, I know what I'm talking about. Demons, not seizures. Paralytics, and he killed them. And great crowds follow him from Galilee and the Decapolis, the ten cities that are in Syria, and from Jerusalem and Judea, <coughs> and from beyond the Jordan. Craig Keener, in his Apostle Matthew, says, Matthew also wants his readers to know how widely word about Jesus spread. He's also interested in the geographical distribution of his popularity. By Syria, Matthew probably means not the entire official province, but region to the north northeast of Palestine. Though many Jews <coughs> lived in the Decapolis, these Jews' hearing of Jesus in the predominantly Gentile region allows Matthew to point his readers to the geographic expansive Gentile mission. So what happens after Matthew 4? So all these people from all these regions that are Gentile come and they gather around him. All these people gather, but he speaks to his disciples and he says, Matthew 5, 14, 16, You are the light of the world. City set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp 
and put it under a basket on a stand. And he gives light to all who are in the house. Same way, let your light shine before others. So they may see your good works and glory to your Father as heaven. This is drawing imagery directly from Isaiah 2 and 16. Jesus is explicitly calling his Jewish followers, who, unlike us, understand that his references in the Sermon on the Mount and recognize this as a call that if they are to follow him, they are to be a light on the world to the nations. And then we all know this passage, Matthew 20. After Jesus completes his mission to Israel <clears throat> and rises from the grave as the new humanity, finally, the tension is, that began all through Matthew of Jesus being sent to the people of Israel but encountering the nations as he goes along, his mission now extends um, explicitly to the nations, Matthew 20. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, oh boo, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Hold, I'm with you at the end of the age. So the summary here, the suffering servant of Isaiah, who's going to bring this unity, um, is Jesus. And it's going to go through Acts. Ah, oh, would have been beautiful. Um, but the summary up to this point, so... Um, let's see, how do I want to do this now that we've been doing this for like 40 minutes? <coughs> um, just keep going? Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't, I want to, you know, I'm going to run out of juice soon. So, okay, so I'm going to pick a couple things that I think are really important out of this. So when we go to Acts, one thing that I want to highlight is Pentecost. So after Jesus' ascent, um, seven sevens of days later, when the people would be bringing their first fruits of the offering to the temple, Acts 2, 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, referencing Sinai, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared, on, um, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. That's tabernacle imagery. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Um, this is a rhetorical device uh, meant to call back to everything that we've read up to this point. At this time, the multitude gathered together, and they were bewildered because each one, hearing them speak in his own language, amazed and astonished, saying, aren't these people hicks from Galilee? Aren't these like weird people that actually don't know how to speak languages? And how is it that we each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, each parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does it mean? But others mocked and said they're just filled with new wine. So 15 different languages that all map back to Genesis 10. And this is a reversal of Babylon. Whenever they, this I love, I read this that someone wrote. Whenever they tell the story, the people of God tell the story of Jesus under the power of the Spirit, nations unite into one language and one speech. So this, this is, the Pentecost is littered with temple imagery. So combined with temple, Im, temple imagery, this harkens back to the idea that we image God when we are all and one in this Trinitarian sense. So we'll skip through the rest of this. I was going to read an Acts, but the summary of that is um, the suffering servant wants to unify nations, but he wants to do it through his church. Um, as we see Acts 10, Acts 15, this is another important thing 
burn in your memories. The chosen people of God persistently show a pattern of being the greatest stumbling block for the nations to come back into the family of God. Persistently. So we get to Galatians. <clears throat> this is about why the finish line of having the nations come back into the family is so important. If there's no lived out unity in Christ, the message of Christ is useless and meaningless because they're not demonstrating their unity to a single risen king. When they pick anything else other than their identity as the people of God under a single risen king, it results in exile, it results in fracture, it results in disunity. It's written early in Paul's ministry. Jewish leaders were trailing him, giving their take on Jesus' story, bad-mouthing Paul, convincing people that they needed to do the thing that made them people look like them to be circumcised, to be a member of the community of Jesus the Messiah. This resulted in people not eating together. So once again, people picking something that was not the gospel message, looked a lot like it, but was not the gospel message, and that resulted in exile and broken community. I was pretty dead convinced that the purpose of God is to create a family that brings in all the families. And he sees circumcision as opposing the will of God in this. He calls it another good news. So the issues at stake here, what is the good news and what kind of community constitutes a community created by the message of the good news? We get that in Galatians 3. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you baptized into Christ have clothed yourself. This is echoing back to the shame and the loss of humanity in the garden um, and the reversal of that loss of unity. They're not being unified because they're clothed by God in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, so there's no ethnic identity or religious identity. Neither slave nor free, there's no social status. Nor is there male or female, there's no gender identity. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Then we get to, it's good stuff, Ephesians. This time, he's not addressing a crisis. Um, He's kind of just waxing about uh, the unity of the family of God. He opens with a poem, uh, points of how all the cosmos is unified in Christ. And then after that, he gives examples uh, Conceptual applications and specific practices that can exemplify unity. This is okay. So, you're at the beginning when I'm talking about um, man and woman coming one and one body, um, and the unity and that Trinitarian unity that's involved in that. It's like, what the heck is he talking about? It's supposed to be a genealogy. This is where it all comes back together. Ephesians two fourteen to twenty two. For he himself is peace, who has made the two groups talking about Jews and Gentiles this time, not male and female. One, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, that wisdom that we take for ourselves where we say you're different from that creates hostility. By setting aside his flesh, in his flesh, the law, with its commands and regulations, Jesus took the hostility of both Jews and Gentiles onto himself and the cross. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both to God through the cross. He put to death their hostility. Paul is using two one language from Genesis 2 here, where God took one human and made them into two so they could become one again. And he does this in order to show the unity of a different kind of division with his ethnic unity. came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. <clears throat> For through him, we both have access to the Father Spirit. More to an language, but this time it's to the Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Here we go. In him, the whole building is joined together 
and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by spirits. Remember when I talked about temple imagery and man and woman. It's coming back here. This reaffirms the idea of temple imagery in the form of Eve from Adam's side. And this reaffirms the idea that all together unified in our diversity, we are the image of God. The summary here, the suffering sermon, servant of Isaiah will unify the diverse family of God by the church through the power of the Spirit, creating communities that exemplify Christian love through the Spirit. So that's my little, whew, that's the island hopping. Okay, next slide. So what? Okay, next slide. I went through a lot, <coughs> and it was a blast of all sorts of stuff. So a couple things. One, like I said before, Genesis 1 through 11, this gives us theme to carry forward in Scripture. The second thing, I'm going to talk about this, what I call the Trinitarian model of love. I got this idea from a really good book, it's one of my top three favorite Christian nonfiction books, um, called The Light of the Trinity by Michael Reeve. And he asked the question, uh, what was God doing before the creation of the universe? And his model for understanding the Trinity is that Yahweh was existing within a community of love, and the natural result of that kind of love was to reach out into the places that were formless and void and bring the kingdom of God. So, as we're looking at this model for unity, there are two things that I've seen, and I think there's this balance. So, when it comes to the model of what I, what I think of church health, I think I see one of two things kind of in different churches that I've gone to all throughout my, you know, growing up in Louisiana and then moving to Tucson. And many great things about these churches, but usually falling on one of kind of two sides. One of the churches that I went to when I was in college, excellent at sending people to bring about the reunion of the family of God and the nations. Every summer, people were gone. The college group was like totally abandoned. But their presence, being able to exemplify that love at home, was almost non-existent. And on the other side, the other thing that I see um, is the flip side. Is that it's almost like a in order to not be that, we become the other thing, where it's um, the priority is so focused on neighborhood that the missiological framework is absolute garbage. Um, and I think what I see with that is that um, if you're part of a kingdom where the God is a Trinitarian God exists in a community of love, natural, uh, the natural result of being created in the image of that God, look to the places where the kingdom of God is not, and you say, I, I want to bring that there, I'll naturally go out there. So when it comes to a community that is very involved in just one specific area, but they never raise their eyes to see where, I mean, God, if you go through scripture, uh, God is, I, I use the word obsessed with bringing this about and using his people to bring this about. If that's nowhere on a church's radar, I, what I've, the experience that I've had when I finally can, can sit down and talk to people in that environment is their motivation for loving the people around them, though it's, you know, it's wonderful to love the people around you, that's not, it's based in a desire to, to um, make a name for themselves as good people um, and not so much that existing in a community that's naturally outreaching. But what I think when you see a healthy church, it's a balance of those two things. 
love that exists within the community um, and in their local neighborhoods is such that it, the natural result of it is to reach out into the places in, uh, in Genesis when the tohu vavohu, the, the formless and void, and to bring the Spirit of God and to bring life. We're created in the image of God who naturally does that. Uh, it is not a far stretch to say that that would naturally come for all of us. So the Trinitarian recognize within our own groups, are we existing in a community of love where the natural result is to look and to see where the kingdom of God is not focus energy and to actually, all I, all I ask is just that people care. That doesn't exist. So God cares deeply about the nations, but God's, and I said this before, and this is all through Acts, the epistles, God's own people become the obstacle to the nations time and time and time again. A little point of clarification. I've had this conversation with people through the years where it's like God cares about the nations and he's like, and the, the people that I talk to will be like, yeah, that's why I go and I love my neighbor. I want to make a distinction. Not, when you look at this theme through scripture, stuff about like love thy neighbor and all, all very good, but that is not what he's talking about. Um, unless your neighbor is a Bangladesh cheek. Um, and I've done things in like... Um, talks on this, and I find it's uh, what I hope to do whenever I'm, whenever I'm doing this is to, this is from Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Jamie and I were on vacation, and this came up as the guy was reading it. Uh, and Jamie looked at me, and he was like, you're Sherlock Holmes, you do this all the time. Uh, and he said to Watson, for otherwise I shall keep on piling fact upon fact on you until your reason breaks down uh, under them and acknowledges me to be right. So if you've ever met me, that's probably you know, not a far stretch. I want to hammer this home um, that I think there are, I, I don't want us to spend a lot of time coming up with reasons, and I haven't said the M word yet, I hope you noticed that, but I want us to, um, just as collectively as God's people in Western culture, to try and avoid coming up with reasons why this doesn't matter to God's heart. Because the people of God all throughout Scripture consistently are the people who are the barrier to the family of God being unified. Okay, next slide. Oh, yeah. So um, when it comes to reached people, so people um, that have not yet experienced the kingdom of God. Um, every Halloween I get a normal picture of their dogs and costumes because it reminds me of the that uh, Americans spend more money on Halloween costumes for their pets than uh, churches do to bring the kingdom of God to family that is not yet the kingdom of God around the world. Next. Okay, here's what else. The other thing, this is attached to, kind of to the Babylon obsession, making names for ourselves apart from our identity, the image of God. Um, when we do this, we become false idols. Uh, go to the next slide. So, I, I can't give a lecture without doing homework because that was my life for a quarter of a century. So, homework. Two things that I hope you do or hope you would take away and kind of think about at home. One, distill the gospel into its most fundamental essence and challenge yourself to see if there are categories where you dehumanize or elevate your own group. Okay? I'm going to read that again gospel into its most fundamental essence and challenge yourself to see if there are categories where you dehumanize others, elevate your group. Second thing is 
How are we as God's elect acting as stumbling blocks for the nation coming back to the family of God? Think about those two things as you go about your week. Okay, next slide. So, just two little things that I'm going to say that kind of saw that encouraged me. This is the Church of Annunciation. I think it's in Nazareth. And say what you, J.I. Packer's rolling over in his grave with this slide, but say what you will about like iconography of different things. But um, it's a church in Nazareth where different cultures have come together um, and made different artworks of how they see Christ as their brother. And you should Google that's just absolutely beautiful. In the next slide. This is the church of Peternister on the Mount of Olives. And you see those plaques on the side. <clears throat> they are all um, the Our Father prayer. In all of these different languages that I've heard, obviously not been, but you can go and you can see groups of people from all tribes and tongues and languages. praying to God. So I'm going to finish up with the last island that we're going to try and land on. Uh, I'm going to read this to you. I'm going to try and get through it without like, choking up. Revelation 5. So on the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, scroll written within, and at the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, is worthy to open the scrolls and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, that he can open the scroll with seven seals. And between the throne, the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw not a lion, y'all standing as had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes the seven spirits of God sound all the earth and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and when he had taken the scroll of living creatures and the four elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and bowl full of incense which are the prayers of the saints sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal for you were slain and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God cares about this. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbered myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and glory and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The lamb is the only name worthy of elevating. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and on the earth and the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell and worshipped. Revelation 7, 19, 7, 9 through 17. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. God cares about this. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches over their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne of the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, And blessing, glory, and wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might to our God forever. Amen. 
Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of them. Therefore they are before the throne of God, serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger more, nor either thirst. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat for the lamb. In the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And you will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Let's pray. Lord, I think my prayer coming out of this, this is, I've talked to people about this before for 10 years. And God, my, my prayer is just that we would have our heart. I pray that you would help us to see the ways that we elevate our own image. Um, how we try to take our group in anything other than our image of God is elevate that put other people down, to take our focus away on your heart. I pray that you would give us eyes to see how we can disappear. This is your heart all throughout Scripture. Is the theme. If you want to bring your kids back, you want to wipe away tears from their eyes. God, if we make excuses to not be a part of that, show us. Show us the ways that we are a stumbling block to your family coming back together again. In your name I pray. Amen.